We're going to be uh, in, in, in uh, 1 Thessalonians this morning. Um, the book of 1 Thessalonians is really a uh, letter of, of relief that Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica as he gets an encouraging report from Timothy that things in the young church are going well. It wasn't easy, but things were going well there. Uh, we're going to look from uh, uh, 1 Thessalonians, but I, I, I want to start reading in chapter 1, verse 1, and we'll go up to 2, uh, verse 12. But I think it's good to, to catch some of the encouraging tone from this first chapter. This really is a very encouraging letter that he writes. So we'll start in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 1, and go to 2, verse 12. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy... To the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith <clears throat> and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about, report about us what kind of reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come." For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. Chapter 2, verse 2. But after we had already suffered and had been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. But just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have, might have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that you've given us, and we thank you for this testimony from Paul about the way that he ministered with the, with the Thessalonians. 
His desire was that they would live in a way that was worthy of this great calling, and that is our desire, Lord, that we would live worthy. We want to have the kind of ministry that the Apostle Paul had, one that is fruitful and effective, and one that we can uh, even be able to write an encouraging report about uh, because those that we ministered to will know uh, that it was true. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, help us, Lord, to learn from your word, to be changed by it. Give us hearts that are, are humble. And in so doing, Lord, as we look forward to pleasing you, may we do only do so through Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for giving us your spirit as we believe in your Son, so that we are united with him and we have the potential to do what we can never do apart from you, and that's living lives that affirm the validity of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. I want us to imagine it's time for us to send off from high school, and we're getting close here, uh, one of the uh, students from Cornerstone Bible Church as we get to send them off to college. Now, you can just imagine that maybe it was someone you've seen grow, grow up here at Cornerstone. Maybe it's someone that you've taught in, in either Rock or Roots Ministry. You've known them since the time that they were a child. Maybe you can imagine even sending off your own child to college. You can imagine in this little, uh, as we imagine together here, that it's someone who in their later teen years received the gospel, they, they'd grown up knowing it, they received it, and they've been changed by it. They've been transformed. They've, they, they're, they're, they're different. It's real for them. You've been excited about seeing the, God's work in their lives. But now it's time for them to go. So imagine what you would say to them before they leave, that, what encouragement you'd give them, what exhortation you'd give them, how you'd charge them to continue to live a life pleasing to the Lord as they launch for college. Imagine you have that final coffee with them or have them over for dinner and implore them. You stay in touch with them, but then imagine a month after they've been at school, you don't hear anything. All of a sudden, there's no more emails, there's no phone calls, there's no Facebook messages, and you start wondering, you start worrying. Is it just that they've been super busy, or are they starting to drift? Are they starting to compromise? Have they fallen in with the wrong crowd? Uh, many of us here are parents, and I think that you can imagine your kids, doing that and you, you don't hear anything. Are they still walking with the Lord? Are they being faithful? You can imagine the relief of getting a report back from a fellow student who comes back uh, uh, here and gives an encouraging report about this student who's gone off to college. And their report is encouraging. They've been bold in their faith. They're living an uncompromising life. They're committed to a local church. They've been, they're, they're, they're plugged in. They're doing well. And imagine the sigh of relief that you feel. You might have some uh, uh, stern words for them. Why aren't they returning your phone calls? But as you can imagine this, what would you say to them? You, you, you've got a chance to send a letter back with a student who's going back after the week we can visit to the student you've been concerned about. What would you write to them? Would you encourage them about what you've heard about their growth? Would you remind them of those basic core gospel truths? Would you warn them against sin? Maybe you do some of all of the above, is you desire for them to stay faithful. 
Well, as you write this letter, how much time would you spend writing about yourself? About the way that you minister to them? That's probably not your first impulse, I'm guessing. Yet that's exactly what Paul does as he writes to the church in Thessalonica on the east coast of Greece. As we looked here in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, he spends 12 verses, an eighth of the book, reminding the Thessalonians of how he ministered to them. Now, Paul was only able to stay at the church in, in Thessalonica at most a few months until he was forced to leave the city. And we learn about that in Acts 17. So we'll start there. In Acts 17, uh, Paul records his ministry to, 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 the, to the church in, Thessala, in Thessalonica, Acts 17, verses 1 through 10. Now, when they had traveled through Am, Am, Amphipolis and, and, and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out, out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also, and Jason has welcomed them. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another King Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of, of the Jews. So, so, so you, can, you can see there. So they were ministering in the synagogue there for three weeks before they get pushed out. And then the uh, uh, Jews who were in the city were jealous were jealous of the converts that Paul and Silas and Timothy were getting. And so they rile up really a mob in the city to drag away some of the Christians. Paul has to leave in the middle of the night in this new city where he was able to not spend very much time planning this new church. Well, Paul went from Thessalonica to Berea and Athens and Corinth. Uh, but Paul had left behind his heart, really, in that city, and he was continually burdened for them. Finally, he gets a chance from Corinth to send Timothy back to that young church plant. Uh, we can hear a little bit in 1 Thessalonians 2, 17, 3, 3 through 5. So we'll go back to 1 Thessalonians 2 now. We'll jump ahead a little bit to verse 17, because it's really important, I think, here to hear what Paul's heart is. So in chapter 2, verse 17, as he gets this encouraging report from Timothy, we, we, we get to see a little bit of his heart for them. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while, in person, not in spirit, it's like we didn't want to leave. We're all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. 
Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction, and so it came to pass, as you know. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. There's nothing worse for Paul than to think that the, that the Thessalonians, after receiving the gospel, after believing in Jesus Christ, would, as they were suffering, leave Jesus. And so they couldn't wait to find out about how they were doing. So Paul sends Timothy back. Timothy comes with this encouraging report. And then Paul spends 12 verses, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, talking about the way that he ministered to them. And I think we have to ask ourselves why. Right? There'd be so many things you would want to, to write them about. And Paul does spend time in 1 Thessalonians uh, um, paying attention to some doctrinal issues and paying attention to some moral issues. And yet Paul knew it was necessary to remind them about how he, how si Silas and Timothy ministered to them. And he does this in verses 1 through 12, even when there was no clear indication in the letter that Paul was even coming under attack. I mean, it's not like in, in, in other letters where people are saying horrible things about Paul or criticizing his apostleship. We don't see that happening here. And yet Paul spends all this time talking about his ministry. Why does he do this? I think there's an often underappreciated correlation between the way we do ministry and the truth of the gospel. There's an underappreciated correlation between the way that we do ministry and the truth of the gospel. In these verses, Paul gives a different kind of apologetic than what's taught in most seminary classes. The apologetic isn't, they're not arguments for the existence of God or for the truth of the Bible or for the deity of Christ. No, the apologetic he gives here, the defense of the ministry, is the way that he did his ministry. And that's the way that we do our ministry needs to be an apologetic of the truth of the gospel. If our lives are compromised, if our holiness is compromised, the gospel we proclaim is compromised. If our holiness is compromised, the gospel we proclaim is compromised. When we seek to give a doubting brother or sister encouragement that God is really working in their lives, that we see them saved, maybe we'll point out to them the sufficiency of Christ's death. I see the truth of the gospel working in your life. Or maybe you, you talk about evidences of their conversion as you say, wow, I've seen you changed. And, and Paul does that in 1 Thessalonians 2. But what's surprising is that he talks about the way that he ministered to them. In 1 Thessalonians 2, 1, he says, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. You know our coming to you, our ministry among you, our gospel proclamation among you wasn't in vain. It wasn't futile. It wasn't wasted. You know our coming to you wasn't in vain. And he doesn't say because your lives were changed, although that's true. He doesn't say because the gospel always has an effect. And God's word 
has the effect that God intends. Instead, what he does is he points to how they lived among them. We see he, he, he'd already done this a little bit in, in, in chapter 1, and, and that's, that's why I wanted to make sure you read chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse 4, he says, Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. I know God has chosen you. And why? Verse 5, For our gospel didn't come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And I think we think that that makes sense. I know God chose you because of the way you respond to the gospel. But, in the second half of verse 5 of chapter 1, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Why does he point to them? Why does he say, just as you know what kind of men we were? Like, why is that so important? Why does it matter what kind of men the gospel proclaimer is and not just the effect that the gospel has on those who've been saved? And really, Paul makes a big deal here in talking about what the Thessalonians know. In chapter 2, verse 1, for you yourselves know. Chapter 2, verse 2, as you know. 2, 5, as you know. 2, 9, for you remember. 2, 10, you are witnesses. 2, 11, for you know. This is something that was evident to them, that was clear. Who Paul and Silas and Timothy were was indisputable. There's no confusion at all about their character. In verses 2 through 12, Paul reminds the Thessalonians of how they administered among them. Now, it wasn't because Paul was worried about being popular, but he was concerned that the Thessalonians remember what was true. Paul understood that God's normal method, his ongoing method of saving souls, is that the truth of his message be confirmed by the lives of his ministers. That the truth of God's message be confirmed by the lives of his ministers. And I don't mean ministers just in the sense of those who are apostles, those who are pastors. I'm talking about all of us. By those who have the ministry of the gospel. The transformed lives of God's servants are an essential apologetic to the gospel. The Apostle Paul reminds the Thessalonians of how he ministered among them so that they would remain convinced of the truth of the gospel. And the same is true today. Our ministry can either confirm the truth of the gospel or can distract from it. The way that we serve, the way that we live can either confirm the truth of the gospel or it can cloudy the gospel. Cloudy, I don't know if that's the word. It can, uh, it can distract the gospel or obscure the gospel. So this morning, we're going to see six characteristics of effective ministry that confirms the truth of the gospel. Six characteristics of effective ministry that confirms the truth of the gospel. None of us really know how long we'll be ministering here at Cornerstone Bible Church. Some of us will maybe move away because of job changes, responsibilities with extended family. The children in our homes may go off to college or to out-of-state jobs. Maybe some of us will go on a short-term team this summer. We'll have this great, intense ministry, but it'll be short-lived, and sometimes we'll never get to see those people again. The reality is that the Lord could take any of us at home anytime. None of us know how long our ministry is going to be. It's so easy to forget that our ministry, whether it's to our care groups, whether it's to the whole church, is not permanent. 
when you aren't here any longer, what will those you minister to know about you? What will they recall about you? What will be certain about you? What will your children know about you? What will the teens in youth ministry know about you? What will the people in your care group know about you? What will maybe even visitors here today for the first time know about you? Will the way you minister now leave them convinced of the truth of the gospel and of God's work, not in your life, but in their lives? Okay, so the way that they see you live, will that leave them convinced that the gospel's true? Now, as we look at these six characteristics of effective ministry that confirm the gospel, I think that many of you are gonna be really encouraged as you see these in your lives. And that's because God saved you. He's changed you. You're, you're gonna see these. You're going to be encouraged. Now, there may be one or two of these that you look and say, wow, I really need to grow in that area. The point of this message isn't to be condemning. It, it, it isn't to kind of to be beating yourself up and say, I'm so, I'm so inconsistent and let me count the six ways I failed. I think you're going to be encouraged with these. You may find, though, that there's areas where you need to grow, where you need to be more consistent. And God is gracious and he is willing to help. He is eager for you to please him. I love that, that, uh, that we've been studying in Romans 8. By God's grace, we have the mind of the Spirit. And the mind of the Spirit, if you are united with Christ, co compels us, it propels us towards obedience, towards these char characteristics we're going to talk about. So if you're going to have a ministry that confirms the truth of the gospel, the first characteristic we need is courage. Our ministry must be courageous. If we're going to have a ministry that confirms the truth of the gospel, our ministry must be courageous. 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 2, I'm going to read again. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much, much opposition. The book of Acts tells about what had happened directly previous to this. How Paul had been ministering in Philippi before going to, 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 Thess, to Thessal, the Thessalonians. Excuse me. In Acts 16, it talks about this. How Paul had been seized. How he had been dragged into the marketplace. He'd been lied about. How the crowd had joined in attacking. How magistrates from the city in Philippi had torn off Paul's garments. How he and Silas had been beaten with rods. How they'd received many blows. They'd been thrown into prison. How his feet had been put into stocks. And then after all that, sent off quietly. Or at least they had tried. But Paul said, this isn't how you treat a Roman citizen. So that is what had happened. He said, but after we had already suffered and been mistreat, mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. You can imagine that 90 mile uh, journey from, from Philippi to, the, to Thessalonica. He walked along that 90 mile highway going west. Can you imagine walking 90 miles having been beaten with rods, knowing you're going to another city and likely to get the same again? 
How many of you would kept going for 90 miles? I don't know if I would keep going for a mile, right? You say, well, turn back. Let's just stay here. Let's just lie low for a while. Let's take some time to heal and recover. It says, it says that he has boldness in our God amid much, much opposition. And when he went from Philippi to Thessalonica, he, he met opposition there, and I'd read about that. The Jews becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, one of the Christians there. They're seeking to bring them out to the people so that Paul has to leave at night. But he still had boldness in God in the midst of all this and being beaten from city to city, he has boldness in God. And where does this boldness come from? It's the confidence that this is God's work that this is God's mission, that this is God's message, that this authority that he has is from God. This kind of, of boldness and undaunted courage in the midst of all this opposition is, was a clear indication of the veracity, the truth of Paul's claims. His boldness doesn't come, you can imagine someone walking down a dark alley, but that's okay, he's not afraid because he has a concealed weapons permit. He's got guns. He's got, he's got a missile launcher. Is that where his boldness comes from? No, his boldness comes from God. And if our gospel is to, be, to be believed by those that we minister to, if we want our college kids who go off to know that this is true, that we have to have boldness too. We have to have courage. Those we minister to must be able to say what Paul says in Acts 20, 27. They must be able to say about this. We didn't shrink from declaring to them the whole purpose of God. What will those that we minister to, the ones that we disciple, think about the gospel if we're always apologizing for what it says? If when it comes time to talk about same-sex marriage, if we kind of just kind of mumble about it and just kind of want to obscure that. Or what will our children think if when we talk about hell and it being eternal punishment that we kind of talk about it in, in an ashamed way? Or what will our care groups think if we circumvent discussions if we just kind of don't want to talk about what happens to unreached people groups? Why would they believe what we say if we're not bold? Now, we may not all be street preachers, right? Does God gift us in different ways? God gifts us in different ways, but we have to be courageous with God's message. If we want those that we minister to to be absolutely convinced of the truth of God's word, we need to be bold with it. And this is, this is something we need to be praying for. We need to be praying for it for one another. The apostle Paul asked for prayer for boldness. In Ephesians 6, 19 to 20, he prays for the Ephesians. Pray on my behalf, that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. We need to be praying for one another. We need to be praying for one another in our care groups so that we will be bold with the gospel. Paul could say to the to the Thessalonians, as you know, we have boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God. Do you have courage in, in your proclamation of the gospel? Or maybe is there a doctrine you've been shying away from? Maybe there's been someone you know you need to confront, but you haven't been because it's not comfortable. Do your children, 
Do those around you know that you're bold with the gospel? Have you taken risks with your neighbors, with parents of your kids' classmates, with relatives for the gospel? Have you been bold with the gospel? Will those whom you minister to, those you minister alongside, will they be able to say you did not shrink from declaring the whole gospel of God? Why would they believe this? Why would they know that it's true if we're not bold with it? This is God's word given to us. So if we're going to have this kind of ministry that affirms the truth of the gospel, we need to be courageous. It also needs to be a genuine ministry. It needs to be a genuine ministry. And that's what Paul talks about next. That's the second characteristic. First is it needs to be courageous. It needs to be genuine. In verses three through six, Paul's genuine motive was to please God by proclaiming the gospel. He didn't have a motive that was polluted or adulterated. He wasn't duplicitous or double-minded. It's genuine, it's pure. He says in verses three and four, for our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we've been approved by God, to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. Paul had passed God's testing. He had been approved by God. And now Paul's ministry was propelled by one purpose. Since God had entrusted him with the gospel, he would seek to please God. Paul was only concerned with God's evaluation of his ministry. His report card came from God. His bill of health came from God. He wanted to work in a way that was approved by God. So in verses three through six, Paul lists several false motives that he was free from. He could attest in, 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 in verse three that our exhortation does not come from error. He, Paul hadn't been tricked or mistaken now, it wouldn't have mattered how genuine Paul was if he had the wrong message, right? There's lots of people proclaiming a false gospel who are very genuine, but it's not the real gospel. So Paul affirms again, it doesn't come from error, and it doesn't come from impurity. His mission wasn't polluted by lust by any kind of unclean desire. He wasn't out to get famous. He wasn't trying to be a best-selling author. He wasn't trying to be some kind of pampered guru uh, who gets kind of people just catering to all, all of his desires. He's not in it for, 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 for sex. He wasn't in it for glory. He says, nor did he come by way of deceit. There's no trick here. You know, there's, there's, there, there's, there's not some hook hiding in the bait He's not a televangelist who pops on his private jet, jet to his next posh speaking engagement. It says in verse 4 that uh, he spoke not as pleasing men. And in verse 5, for we never came with flattering speech as you know. We know that the gospel is not the way to please people. In Galatians 1.10, Paul says, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. If we want to be people pleasers, we will not be slaves of Jesus Christ. He says that he never came with flattering speech. So flattery is trying to influence someone with your words for your benefit. Uh, the, the, the commentator Liam Morris describes it as lulling someone into a sense of security so that you can obtain your own end. 
You just say nice things to people. They may be true things, but nice, nice things to get your way. He said he wasn't motivated by money, nor with a pretext for greed, as, and, and he calls God to witness. Greed is the insatiable, excessive desire to have more and more. So that wasn't Paul's motive. It wasn't greed. He didn't come with flattery. He wasn't motivated by glory in verse 6. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others. Even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. He wasn't out for fame. He wasn't out for honor. Now, that was something that, that, that was common in, in that day as sophists and, and, and uh, people would, would, would go along with, with, with rhetoric and they'd kind of have speaking competitions and you could get uh, really famous by being such a great orator. But that wasn't what Paul was going for. Now he said that he could have kind of gotten some glory as an apostle. He had seen Jesus. He'd been sent by God himself, but he said, we might have asserted our authority, but he didn't. He wasn't motivated by being popular, by fattening his wallet, by gaining earthly glory, by any kind of impurity. And he could say that both the, the, the Thessalonians who he ministered to and God himself could affirm this. If our ministry is going to be effective, we have to have one desire, and that's God's pleasure. Our one desire has to be God's pleasure, to be faithfully pleasing to him. Is that your one desire? Is your desire in your ministry to be pleasing to him? Is that why you do what you do? Is that why maybe you lead a care group? Is that why you serve in roots ministry or in children's ministry? Maybe that's why you aspire to be, is that why you aspire to be a elder or preacher? You know, is it because you love approval is it because you like people saying, good job? Maybe it's because you feel respected. You know, I think that there can be a secret danger into feeling essential as you minister to, 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 to one another. It, ministering to one another, discipling, being disciple can be a sweet, sweet relationship. But there can be this danger of, uh, of thinking yourself essential. To someone, oh, I love me with them. I got to keep me with them. And then pretty soon... You, you feel like, oh, well, if I don't meet with them, they're not going to do well. It can go from good motive to, to, to bad motive quickly. Do you like the feeling of being spiritually essential to those you're discipling? If, if you work with teens, like I used to love working with teens, but there's a good question there. Do you, do you just love being surrounded by people who are happy to see you? Or is your aim to be a good steward of the gifts that God has given you? Can you attest, like Paul, that the aim was to please him? It wasn't for, for reputation. It wasn't for money. It wasn't for glory. It was, it was to please him. It was genuine. If we're going to have a ministry that confirms the truth of the gospel, our ministry has to be courageous. It has to be genuine. Number three, it has to be a nurturing ministry. It has to be a nurturing ministry. 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 through 8 describes Paul's nurturing ministry. But we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become very dear to us. 
So Paul, Paul and Timothy, Silas, they, 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 they weren't throwing around their apostolic weight. Instead, they were like a nursing mother. Now that word for nursing mother there is, is, is really a wet nurse. It's someone who's, who's paid to nurse a baby. He, he says, but we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. So the metaphor here isn't just, it's not just a job. It's like a wet nurse who's taking care of her own children. Now, this is a humble metaphor here, right? It really shows what Paul's heart was. It says that he was affectionately desirous of them. Paul was ready to not only share the gospel of God, but also their own lives. There was no limit to what Paul would go through for their good. Like the mother of a newborn baby, giving up sleep, giving up so much comfort, giving up so much to see their little ones thrive, spending hours sitting there feeding. The source of this ministry, that what, the, 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 it came from love. You had become very dear to us. Paul's ministry is more than just a stewardship of gifts or, or fulfilling a commission that had been given. Paul, Silas, and Timothy loved the, the Thessalonians. And I trust by God's grace that those who you serve alongside and those that you serve over can confirm they are very dear to you. How are you showing that love to them? Are you showing that by having them into your home? by telling them not just you're praying for them, but by what you've been praying for them, by returning their urgent phone calls, by helping them move or bringing a, a, a meal like we've been blessed by. Like nursing a newborn baby, ministry can be exhausting, especially with, with, with young believers who are eager for as much of your time as possible. But it's essential that we nurture them that we give lives to those who are dear to us. Your nurturing them is part of how they know that the gospel is real. Your greatest concern should be their health. Just like that mom with a newborn baby, so concerned when, 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 when we adopted Nora. She, she was four months old. Um, and uh, uh, she spit up her bottle a lot. A lot, a lot, a lot. I, and I was worried. Like, how is this child going to, to stay alive? I mean, it's, 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 it's one of the things about adopting a baby who's not yours. You don't know them. I don't know what she, how much she drank the first four months of her life. I know I want to see her thrive. So as she spat up, I started getting more and more worried. It was a couple days before we got to see the doctor. So I made a spreadsheet. And I really did this. It's embarrassing now, but I did. It wasn't that long ago. A spreadsheet of whether it was, it was a small spit up, a medium one, a large one, because I wanted the doctor to know she's going to die, right? She's not healthy. This can't be right. Eventually, I had to add an extra large spit up because uh, there was so much. Is that the way that you nurture those in your care, in your ministry? Maybe you don't have a spreadsheet but you probably should have one going on in your mind. It doesn't just have to be those that you're over. It can be those that you serve alongside with. How are you praying for one another? How are you praying for the kids in your ministry, the teens in your ministry, the kids in your own home? We care so much when they're babies, but then how is your five-year-old going and your 10-year-old? How's their hearts? 
Is this how you're caring for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you have this nurturing attitude because they're dear to you that you would give your own life to them? Our ministry needs to be courageous and genuine and nurturing. And, and this follows along. It needs to be sacrificial. Our, nurturing, our ministry needs to be sacrificial if it's going to confirm the truth of the gospel. If we want the people that we're ministering to know that the gospel's real, it needs to have these characteristics. It needs to be a sacrificial ministry. 1 Thessalonians 2.9 says, For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Paul reminds the Thessalonians of his labor and hardship. These are w- words of fatigue and exhaustion, of toil. Now this isn't even referring to his preaching ministry. This is referring to the labor that he did so that he could do the preaching ministry. He explains further, working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you. Probably has night first because he would get up while it was still dark. And this is probably in his trade of being a tent maker. First Corinthians talks about him working with his own hands. Even in Corinth where he was working with his own hands, he described that to this present hour we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and roughly treated and homeless. This was not a high-paying job. Now, in America, we were, we're kind of blessed with this, with this revival of an arts and craft moment where, where, where I've, I've got a friend who, who makes leather stuff and pays, charges a lot for this kind of stuff, right? That wasn't Paul's tent-making ministry. He's barely eking together a living doing this. Why does Paul make the sacrifice? It wasn't like he felt like he, he had to work. He was willing to, to receive support. Uh, Philippians 4.16 just says that even in, in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for, for my needs. Paul was willing to be paid. He advocated that the churches pay their teaching pastors. But, God, but Paul did this so that there wouldn't be any confusion about his reason for preaching the gospel. It wasn't for money. Could you imagine if we had a ticket booth outside the door on Sunday morning? We charged people as they came in for the preaching of God's word. Would that send a mixed message about, our, uh, about why we do this? Of course, it would it'd be very confusing. We don't do this for, 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 for money. And that's why Paul was so willing to sacrifice so that there'd be no confusion about his motives. He wasn't doing it for profit. He was willing to get up before dawn in the middle of the night to work long hours just to prevent someone from misunderstanding. That's the kind of sacrifice he had. And I bet by God's grace, your brothers and sisters are seeing you sacrifice too. What kind of sacrifices are you making? I know the worship team comes here on Saturday morning to, 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 to get ready for Sunday. Maybe it's the hours that no one sees spent in counseling or prepping for your Sunday school lessons. Maybe it's fathers giving up a promotion at work so that they can be at home at night to lead their families in God's word. Or maybe it's saying, you know, I have a really promising athlete in my family, but we're not going to give up church so that they get a scholarship. Or maybe it's a mom who is well-educated and can make a ton of money, but is concerned about being a worker at home. Or maybe it's a mom who opens up their home to care for someone's kid in case of emergency or bring someone a meal. These are the kinds of things that our, 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 our boys and girls, our teens, the people in your care group need to see happening so that they believe the gospel's real. 
They need to see this kind of sacrifice for doing what God says because of your motives are, 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 are that you want to see someone to persevere. You want to see them excel and to thrive. This is voluntary sacrifice that confirms the truth of God's word. If we're going to have this kind of ministry that confirms the truth of the gospel, it needs to be courageous, it needs to be genuine, it needs to be nurturing, sacrificial. Number five, it also has to be blameless. It also has to be blameless. 1 Thessalonians 2.10 says, You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved toward you believers. He's specifically referring to his pastoral ministry here, how he behaved toward you believers. It wasn't just the lost. He talks about how devoutly they lived. And that's just a sense of holiness, of piety, that, that before God, you obey his commands. You fulfill God's laws. The word upright has a sense of righteousness, that before others, in all of your dealings with them. No one could throw stones at you. You're, you're, you're really above reproach. You're upright. Before God, you're devout. Before people, upright. You're blameless. It's not sinless, but that you're without hypocrisy, that you're above reproach. I remember uh, uh, hearing a story of a pastor once who had done a movie, and the movie required him to swear while doing the movie. And I don't even know really if all the story is true, but I know that I thought differently of that pastor for many years, right? And that was just a rumor. I had heard it so quickly that we start thinking differently of someone because of the things that we overhear. We must not do anything that would lead anyone to question the gospel that we preach because of the discrepancies between what we say and what we do. So how are we doing when someone cuts us off while we drive? In the way that we pay taxes, in the way that we talk to our children, our spouses, how do we respond to a waitress when our food arrives cold? How we act when we're alone or on a business trip? What we watch on TV? Now the answer here isn't that we need to keep our private lives private so that no one can criticize the gospel that we preach. It's to be consistent, to be without hypocrisy, to be blameless. If we're not blameless before both God and men, we're giving those to whom we minister, including our children, room to doubt and reason to waver when the persecution starts. We're making it easier for them to fall away. Well, yeah, I mean, they... they they didn't really believe it was true. Well, they didn't really live like it. They didn't talk like it was. They didn't drive like it was true. Now, this is hard, right? But Paul is pointing to their lives so that the Thessalonians would remember the gospel's true. So he can say, we are blameless among you. Well, does he just want, want a pat on the back and say, good job for being blameless? No, he wants them to say, no, the gospel is true. The world loves to criticizing Christians for being hypocrites, right? And people all the time are saying, well, Christianity is not true. It's just a religion filled with hypocrites. And sometimes we say, oh, yeah, it's true. It really is. But I'm a forgiven hypocrite, right? 
Paul understood that it's not okay to be a hypocrite. The reality of the, the truth of the gospel for those to whom we minister depends on us not being hypocrites. Our kids have to see us not being hypocrites. They have to see us being bold and genuine and nurturing and sacrificial and blameless. That's what the kids in our youth ministry need to see. That's what our coworkers need to see. That's what the whole church needs to see. Now, does that mean we're perfect? No, we are humbly repenting again and again. As my wife will tell you, I'm not perfect. I'm not blameless. And yet, to, to the sense that, can, can I say, you know, and honestly, here, I'm torn. I want to be blameless. I want my kids to grow up saying, my dad believed this. Not just he would die for it, but he believed it. It transformed him, right? Isn't that what you desire? For them to look at you and say, I know that the gospel's true. Even if they reject it, they would have no doubt from the way that they see us live, the way that we as elders live, the way that we as care group leaders live, the way that we as Sunday school teachers live, the way that we as youth group workers live, the way that we as servants in one another's lives live. No doubt that the gospel is true because of how it's changed us. And the uh, last one is surprising, I, I think. It needs to be uh, an individualized ministry too. So if, if we're going to have a ministry that confirms the truth of the gospel, it needs to be courageous, genuine, nurturing, sacrificial, blameless. It must also be a individualized ministry. And this is kind of, kind of surprising here. We see this in verses 11 and 12. He says, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the gospel who calls you into his own kingdom and, and glory. I love this metaphor, as a father with his children. There's a lot I get confused about my girls. If I have to sort the uh, clothing uh, it's pretty much a disaster, right? I'm like, I can't remember which child has which clothes, and sometimes you have to lay them on top of one another. You know what's the worst is socks. The socks are a disaster. Shoes are pretty bad too. There's lots of things that are just are kind of mumbled together. But when it comes to them, I know my kids. I know their personalities and their abilities, their differences, and I'm not content now, God is over the results. But as far as I want, I don't want only 50% of them to love Jesus. I want both of them to love Jesus. And I'm gonna do everything I can by God's grace, even though I fail, so that they love Jesus. And that's what Paul does here. Encouraging, exhorting, imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. Uh, the... Uh, Word exhorting, to call them, to appeal them, to urge them. What does each one need to hear? What, what did the father of the, among the Thessalonians need to hear? What did the mother need to hear? What did the child need to hear? What did the slave need to hear? What did the master need to hear? What did the rich person need to hear? What did the poor person need to hear? What did the overachiever need to hear? What did the slugger need to hear? What did the extrovert need to hear? What did the introvert need to hear? No matter what they were, Paul worked hard to exhort each one of them so that they would live in a manner worthy of who calls you into his own of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. He encouraged them, he persuaded them. 
He used tr gospel truths. He used promises. He used warnings. And 1 Thessalonians has those. I mean, he, he uses everything to help every individual be as Christ-like as possible. He says that he implored them. He insisted that he, in char he charged them. Our lives, our conduct, it has to conform to the blessing that we've been given. It's not okay for our lives not to match up. We have to live worthy. Now, Paul didn't wait till they reached a certain level of maturity before he called them to obedience. These new converts, this is what he's talking about after being with them for a couple months. Was he busy? Yes, he was spending all day as a tent maker. I can imagine he's making tents from early from late at night to early in, in the morning, and new converts are coming by, and as he's doing whatever tent makers do, he's imploring them and encouraging them and exhorting them. He was exhausted for this. He wanted to get it right for each one of them. This is not a picture of a man cave kind of dad who's vegging for hours watching ESPN. I put here about Sabbath night football, but I don't think, yeah, Sabbath night football. Watching Sunday night football, right? He was sacrificial and creative in pushing each of them towards as much Christ-likeness as possible. This is what it is to be a care group leader. This is what it is to be an elder. This is what it is to be a parent. This is what it is to be a husband. This is what it is really for each of you to be in one another's life. So think of who's in your care group and what are you gonna do to see them become as Christ-like as possible? And just so that you know it's all of our responsibility, Paul ends this letter in 1 Thessalonians 5.14. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. We all have this job. So be exhausted so that we're all like Christ. Pour yourself out. Put your relationship on the line. Say the hard things. Get to know someone's heart. Have them over for dinner. Bleed for them. Don't let Christ be shamed because their lives aren't matching up. Do everything you can. As Paul reminds the Thessalonians of the way he ministered to them, of how Timothy and Silas ministered along them, he was confident that he had walked in a manner worthy of God, that he had ministered courageously and genuinely and nurturing and sacrificially and blamelessly and individually doing exactly what each one needed. He reminded them of this so that they would know in verse one, for you yourselves know, brethren, our coming to you was not in vain. Is that the ministry that you have now? Is it a gospel confirming ministry? Is it gospel confirming parenting? Is it gospel confirming being a brother and sister in Christ? I imagine that each of you have been ministered to by godly men and women. I want you to take a minute and think of those, some of those that have had a gospel-confirming impact on your life. Who in your life has had a gospel-confirming impact? Maybe some of you are jotting down a, 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 little, a little list. You, you could and send a thank you card later. But as you think about that list, 
what did those who've had that most gospel-confirming impact on your lives have in common? Weren't they courageous? Were they genuine, nurturing, sacrificial, blameless? Now, I know it can be difficult in, 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 in some environments to have an, an, that, that individualized attention from each of those people, but definitely from some of them, right? They said to you exactly what you needed to hear. The ministry of those men on my list confirms the power of God's word in my life. Men whose ministry wasn't in vain, it wasn't empty ministry, and I can say about them, I know what kind of men they proved to be for my sake. What kind of people will you prove to be for someone else's sake? We are not sufficient for these things in ourselves. God is gracious. He's willing to help us. This list of sixes may be a lot. Maybe pick one or maybe two to be focusing on so that as we have lives of ministry in one another's lives, in our family's lives, in a lost world's life, we can confirm the truth of the gospel by the way that we live. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that you've given, and uh, I appreciate the surprises that it has for us. And it is uh, surprising in this letter while, where Paul writes to the Thessalonians to encourage them about so much good news, uh, to teach them doctrine, to um, call them to obedience. He spent so much time talking about how he ministered. And uh, um, he was willing uh, for them to be comforted about the truth of the gospel, to be encouraged to remain faithful by the way that he ministered. And Lord, we want the same thing. Lord, we pray, Father, for lives that are consistent. Lord, we are humbled as we look at this list, Lord. You know, the times we lack courage, we get busy with many things, get distracted by the many offerings this world has, the many promises it promises, and we can forget the main things. Lord, we pray for this kind of consistency in our lives, that people would be able to look at our lives and know that the gospel's true. Father, I pray that you would help us as elders, as care group leaders, as biblical counselors, as youth group leaders, as those who serve in children's ministry, as parents, as brothers and sisters in Christ, to be consistent, to be all in, for your gospel, to be genuine, to be nurturing, to be sacrificial, to be bold. Lord, I pray that the way that we do ministry, the kind of individualized attention we give to each other would be such a, an apologetic to the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.